Hello, and welcome to Folklore Fever. My name is Trevor Pullman, and together we're going to journey through stories that shape folklore from various parts of the world. Let's dig in. The concept of monsters hiding in the darkness outside of man's campfire has existed longer than the campfire itself. Some of this is due to simple survival instincts as many nocturnal predators hunted our early ancestors. This is why many people to this day have a fear of the dark. Although the fear isn't truly a fear of the dark, rather it is a fear of what lies in wait in that darkness. As we began to settle and have more permanent homes, we began to fear that although our campfires were larger and brighter, the monsters may have adapted too. We were afraid that the monster may in fact look like a friend. This idea that the monster may have hidden itself within our own ranks required that the monster have some sort of camouflage or way to hide in plain sight. Perhaps the person was actually the monster inside all along. These monsters would continue to take the form of predators we were used to seeing hunting us before. Many of these were ancient fears that lent portions of their abilities to the amalgamated creatures our minds had created. An example of this would be the manticore, which included the dangers of a lion, a viper, and a wild goat. Although goats don't seem scary when we compare them to these other animals, many early humans would have been killed by attempting to hunt or raise goats when they had been rammed or gored. One of the animals that had a long history of attacking people well into the last 100 years was the wolf. These animals were known to attack those working outside of the centers of habitation and any livestock that may have accompanied them. This became one of our most well-known monsters that hid in our midst, the monster inside the man. The earliest mention of a beast man in folklore and literature is as old as settled living. The Epic of Gilgamesh, written over 3,000 years ago in Akkadian, tells the story of a Sumerian king named Gilgamesh. Gilgamesh was not a particularly benevolent king, and his people began to cry to the gods for relief. One goddess, Aruru, took pity on the people that lived in Gilgamesh's kingdom and created a beast. The beast was described as extremely hairy and living with the other animals of the area. Gilgamesh was able to have this beast trapped and taught to live as a human. The beast man was given the name Enkidu, or Lord of the Good Place. Enkidu and Gilgamesh were hated rivals prior to meeting each other in a city street and getting into a wrestling match. Both of them, being impressed with the other's strength, decided to become friends. Although in this early example, the beast within was able to be humanized. Often the opposite is the result of the story. This is seen in the story of Lycaon, who was recorded by the Greek poet Hesiod in the 7th century BC. Lycaon was a king of Arcadia, a region on the southern Greek mainland, who had had a reported 50 sons with several women. These sons were known to be bandits, taking advantage of the people in the area with no repercussions to themselves due to the standing of their father. In order to test the king and his sons, Zeus came to Arcadia disguised as a beggar. When Zeus approached the palace, asking the king to provide a traditional practice that compelled the king to take in and feed visitors in his land, Lycaon was furious that he would be expected to feed this old, disheveled-looking man and began scheming of a horrible way to ensure that no further vagrants would ever call on his hospitality. Lycaon had his sons kidnap a local peasant child and murder the innocent. He had the innards of the child roasted and served to Zeus as roasted lamb. 
Zeus immediately knew that something was amiss about the meal and turned over the table in anger. As punishment for his insolence and disobedience of the ancient rite of hospitality, Zeus turned Lycaon and all of his sons into wolves. This story was used as a way to teach people that cannibalism was taboo, and that would bring repercussions from the gods themselves. Just as Zeus was unwilling to consume human flesh, people were to do the same, lest they be cursed like Lycaon. Lycaon's association with his transformation carries over into our modern terminology surrounding werewolves. The term given to people who have the ability, by choice or otherwise, to change into animals is lycanthropy. This is not to be confused with clinical lycanthropy, which is the mental health condition which causes the afflicted to believe they are actually an animal, but it's not limited to canines. Other cases have included tigers, donkeys, even bees. Another medical condition that is often associated with werewolves is hypertrichosis, which includes the growth of large amounts of thick hair. Although this condition has no effect on the patient's behavior directly, this association often comes from a long history of people with hypertrichosis being exhibited within the circuses and sideshows of the 19th and 20th centuries. Although there have been several different accounts from classical antiquity telling stories of people changing into various monsters, much of our current mythos surrounding werewolves comes from the medieval period. This is when the transformation from human to beast was seen as a power associated with witches and those who had made deals with the devil. Early in the medieval period, we see this as warriors began to set out on longships in search of wealth and glory from Scandinavia. Many people today know about the Viking berserkers, who were men who would go into a wild rage in battle and sacrifice protection from armor or shields to do as much damage as they could as fast as possible. The berserker, which meant bearskin, were warriors who would, according to the Viking sagas, have taken on many physical traits of the bear, such as strength, ferocity, and stamina. The word that was used to describe this trance-like state was hamask, which literally meant to change form. Lesser known than the berserkers, however, are the ulfsarks, or wolfskins. These men were known to wear only wolf pelts into battle, and were known to be such elite warriors that the first king of Norway, Harald Fairhair, is said to have used them as his own personal bodyguards. There have also been several recovered artifacts that depict the Ulfsark's relationship to Odin, the Norse god of war. Odin was often shown in conjunction with wolves, wolf pelts, and even warriors wearing the wolf pelts. As the Vikings traveled throughout northern Europe, raiding, battling, and settling, Ulfsarks and the stories about them would have been present throughout their expansion. The lore of these warriors would mix with local lore and help to inspire tales throughout northern Europe. Near to one of these Viking settlements, which would eventually become Dublin, Ireland, one of these tales grew. In an area of southeast Ireland that used to be known as Ossery, Christianity was beginning to take hold. St. Patrick had arrived and begun teaching in eastern Ireland, and one clan had become particularly belligerent to Patrick's teachings. These people were part of the clan that the kings of Ossery were included in, and as such, probably saw this new foreign religion as a threat to their established power. Because of this, whenever Patrick began to teach or offer services, the members of the clan would begin to howl at St. Patrick like a wolf. This led to Patrick calling upon God's wrath, which laid a curse on the members of the clan, causing them to transform into wolves for seven years, after which they would retain their human forms and not transform anymore. 
In other versions of the story, the clan is not changed entirely into wolves, but retains their human forms, covered by a wolf skin. This seems to parallel the story of the Ulfsarks and their wolf pelts. Many more stories of werewolves also carry the theme of being opposed to priests and religion throughout Europe. In 15th century Valais, part of modern Switzerland, a witch panic occurred that would see people accused of being werewolves, among other accusations of murder, cannibalism, and making chairs fly. There was a very public system of trials and inquisitions that required only three people to accuse a person of witchcraft for them to be jailed without further trial. If a total of six people who were not under any suspicion accused an individual of witchcraft, it was enough to allow for torture until a confession was given, or the accused was killed from the torture. This number was reduced to three if the accusers were already found guilty of sorcery and sentenced to death. You may have gathered from that explanation, but if six people who had not been accused of witchcraft accused an individual, the individual would either die in torture or confess and then be sentenced to death. Either way, a grisly end awaited these people regardless of their standing in their community. Like many later witch trials, the accused were generally those who had been slighted by another member of the community in some way or were outsiders to the greater community. Essentially, if an individual had enemies, there was the potential that they could be executed for witchcraft. Many of these supposed witches had the accusation of being a werewolf laid at their feet and for killing local livestock in their bestial form. Under torture, or the threat of torture, many people confessed to killing livestock and destroying crops while in the form of a monster. The exact number of people killed during the decades-long witch trials in Valais is unknown, but a contemporary writer describes that at least 700 people had been found guilty within the first two years of the trial. And of that number, 200 had already been executed by burning at the stake. Unlike later witch panics, however, including the Salem trials roughly 200 years later, the majority of the accused in this panic were men, with only a third of all those accused being women. This is not the only time mass hysteria accompanied attacks by an unknown canid, however. In the Gévaudan region of France in 1764, attacks by an animal made the creature France's most wanted criminal, and even had royal forces sent to hunt it. A young woman who was herding cattle saw a large animal she described as a wolf, but yet not like a wolf. Although the larger cattle were able to drive the beast off, it was only to find other prey. In a nearby village, a 14-year-old girl named Jean Boulet was found dead. Jean's throat had been torn out. This became part of the calling card of this beast. In addition to the livestock being killed, solitary people throughout Gévaudan's forests became targets as well. Because of the number of attacks across such a large area, it became theorized that there may be more than one animal. One theory was a mating pair. Another theory was a mother and her offspring. A third theory had the beast being a member of a pack which was hunting across the larger area. Due to the large number of attacks, the reports were brought to the attention of King Louis the 15th, who awarded a man who was attacked by the beast with 300 livres, the currency of the kingdom, and a state-sponsored education. His seven friends who helped to drive the beast away were given 350 livres to split among them. 
Louis the Fifteenth also announced that the state would also continue to hunt the beast until it was killed. True to his word, the king hired two professional wolf hunters, a father and son duo. The hunters killed several wolves throughout the region, yet the attacks still continued. When the attacks were not quelled within four months, the royal court instead sent out the king's own personal arquebusier, or rifleman, Francois Antony, a man who was one of the few men who was appointed by the royal court to help the king hunt. Antony was able to kill a large wolf that was over three foot high at the shoulder and weighed 130 pounds. The wolf was stuffed and sent to the palace in Versailles, but Antony wanted to make sure that the problem would be resolved. He continued to hunt for the wolf he believed to be the mate of the male wolf he had killed. It seems there were also pups that the female wolf had given birth to. After killing the pups, which were already larger than their mother, Anthony returned to Paris, where he was awarded 9,000 livres, as well as titles and fame as a hero by the royal court. However, the reports of a large beast did not stop permanently. After the king had announced that the beast was dead, two young boys were again attacked in Gévaudan. This led to a dozen more deaths before another large wolf was killed by a local man named Jean Chastille. This wolf's body was also stuffed, and according to the man who stuffed it, its stomach contained the remains of the final victim. This wolf was later mythologized into a creature that requires Jean Chastille to have recited a litany of prayers and to have used bullets made from consecrated metals of the Virgin Mary. However, this can't be confirmed by contemporary records. This does tie this final beast into the werewolf lore, as it was no longer a normal predator, but a hellspawn that required divine intervention to destroy. The modern theory regarding the Beast of Gévaudan is that due to the number of attacks across such a large area, there must have been several unconnected wolf packs that were the cause of the attacks. These attacks were linked not by physical evidence, instead being tied together by the fear and hysteria which was ripping through the countryside. Just as people were terrified of the beasts prowling their forests, their ancestors feared similar predators out in their forests. As the monsters in the dark began to close in around them, they began to see many more monsters in the woods than were actually there. When we begin to panic and look for monsters, we tend to see them. Whether these are creatures actually attacking our homes, or we're seeing monsters in those around us as they transform into hideous beasts, these monsters can seem very real. The question becomes, where will that monster come from, and when will it attack? Thank you for listening to Folklore Fever. This episode was written and researched by me, Trevor Pullman. The opening theme is by me, you. You can find more of his excellent work at thedarkpiano.com. If you would like to contact the podcast, please send an email to folklorefever at gmail.com. See you soon.